Or we will have more worship through singing. I'm um, at the end of the after the sermon. We do that intentionally. Um, we we do it because we don't worship um, through singing so that we can make it through a sermon. Um, that we the Lord typically and most clearly speaks to us through His Word, and so then we want to be able to sing to respond to worship um, in response to what He has revealed through His Word um, this morning. So. It, we had two new gospel communities start this week. Um, I'm guessing both of them thought it was a cruel joke that we started um, the week we also started Amos, right? So kind of break them in on an easy basis, right? They get to discuss Amos week in and week out. Um, so if you have your Bible or a smartphone, um, some device you'll be looking at the text, we are in the book of Amos. Um, Amos is a short book towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, in the Minor Prophets. So if you see the book of Daniel, it's the closest big book. You need to go back to your right. Um, it's Hosea, Joel, um, Amos, Obadiah. Um, if you get to Matthew, work your way back to the left. Um, the pages in there are, are short, so the books change quickly. And we're going to be in Amos chapter 2. So we, we preach through books like this um, because we believe all of God's Word is valuable. All of it is for life and godliness. Um, we want to, to do it corporately because we want to give you back a section of Scripture that maybe you don't spend a lot of time in. And so Amos is uh, one of the minor prophets. Minor is only um, not in... It's not minor because of significance. It's minor due to length. Um, so we have the major prophets who are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, these long, lengthy books that are easy to find. And then those... At the end of Scripture, or the end of the Old Testament, that are short are the minor prophets due to their brevity. Um, last week, we started Amos. And so if you were not here, um, we will try to do a little bit of recap each week. But if you go to RedeemerPampa.com, we keep our sermons up there. And it would be helpful um, to, to listen to just the background information for Amos. It will help kind of give you a foundation. Um, just a little bit of recap. Amos is one of the, the older prophets. Um, he sets the tone and a lot of the thematic elements that are going to follow in all the prophetic books. Um, most likely he was ministering around 760 to 755 BC. So we're talking roughly 800 years prior to Christ. Um, and and it's, it is a prophetic book. There's going to be a lot of um, poetry. There's going to be lament. There's going to be songs of doom. There's going to be oracles. There's going to be visions. And in books like this, they feel very removed from our current world and culture. And so there's a lot of work to be done for us to begin to see what's really going on so that we can begin to see the impact that it's going to have in our own life. And ultimately, because of the themes and because of the weightiness of a book like Amos, there's, there's a little bit that we're just going to have to sit under. Um, to know that every week doesn't, isn't going to get this like sweet, pretty little bow on it. Um, and and that's, that's important because we need to learn, we're not good at this, to sit under heavy, weighty teaching um, that force, forces us to ask some hard questions of ourselves. Um, maybe it forces us to look at a slightly different um, side or, or characteristic of God that we maybe haven't done before or we're not as comfortable with. Um, and so there will be resolution, I promise that. <laughs> but, but would we be willing to kind of lean into and let Amos do what it's meant to do, um, even if it feels a little bit heavier than normal. 
Um, last week, what we as we started, um, Amos was going through a list of, of nations um, that were neighbors. Some have been long-standing enemies. Some are almost cousins in heritage to Israel. And he's walking through and he's saying, hey, here's what God's going to judge them for. And he begins to just list the nation and some of their like most heinous crimes against humanity. And so as Amos begins, you could almost imagine that the, the people who are listening are cheering, right? Because he's like, God's going to get them. God's coming after them and he's going to get them because of the things that they've done. And they rightly and justly deserve it. And so he just begins to list off nations. And so... Um, Megan, let's, we've got a, just a map that I did not show you last week. Um, you'll see in the blue is Israel. Um, man, I'm not good with color. Is it purple underneath there? Plum? All right, plum. I would have never said plum. Um, is Judah. All right. So remember, um, about 200 years previous to this, you can leave it up there for a minute. About 200 years previous to this, Israel split and, the, and there's 12 tribes, the 10 tribes that make up the kingdom of Israel to the north and two tribes, which are the kingdom of Judah. And so between the two, it's the 12 tribes of Israel, but they have now split into two nations. And Amos is from um, Judah, which is the plum color. And he is, this, this prophecy is towards the kingdom of Israel to the north. So he's gone to the north and he's now speaking. And as he started, he just started naming the nations, right? He starts naming the Philistine states and the kingdom of Edom and of Moab and of Mon and Damascus of Syria and the Phoenician states like Tyre. And, and what is happening is he's drawing a bullseye around Judah and around Israel. And so the, initially the, the recipients of this prophecy would have been excited and cheering saying, all right, it's about time the Lord got him. And what is happening is you can imagine like it's a site being target like it's coming in, right? The target is being sighted in. And as it comes in, the bullseye is on Judah and is on Israel. And so we're going to pick up there this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will, not, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cartful of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. 
and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So Amos, who is not a professional prophet, who is a shepherd, um, has received a word, has seen visions from the Lord. He has now traveled to the north and is beginning to lay this message out before um, Israel. And we remember last week as we talked about um, this kind of poetic structure here for three transgressions and for four. Um, what he's saying is typically you would have listed the three and on the fourth you're saying, look, your sin is to the brim. You've, you've done it all. Um, he's, and so he's just going to the fourth sin saying your sins could be listed. We're just going to go to the one that's, that we're leveling judgment against. It's a reminder that the Lord is not quick to punish. He's not on the first sin out there. He's not looking to judge He's not, um, he's not being capricious or spiteful. There's, they have sinned for a long time, for generations, and, and now he's going to list the sin before them. And so Amos lays out the charges that the Lord has given for Judah. So initially, for his audience, it's still not for them, but it's for two of the tribes of Israel. And he lays this out. Because they have, in verse 4, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Now, last week, as we looked at the nations, it was things like um, they were burning bodies of their enemies and of their, their rulers to use them to whitewash their homes, to gain lime. It was things like they were cutting open pregnant um, bodies. They were um, taking whole peoples and selling them into slavery. It was horrific crimes against humanity. And now he stands and looks at Judah and says, look, as I've listed off these sins and these crimes, Judah, I'm not going to revoke your punishment and you're going to receive judgment. Why? Because you have rejected the law of the Lord and you have not kept his statutes. The lies, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And so I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So we're quickly reminded, like, the Lord is not coddling his people. He's not saying, hey, everyone else is going to be held account, but my people, we're going, to let them, we're going to let them buy here. He's going to deal with this. And ultimately what has happened is they have rejected truth. They were given truth and revelation from God, and instead they've chosen to follow traditions, and they've chosen to follow false gods and idols. Now, if you remember, we looked at this in 2 Kings 14 last week, that, that Israel, when they broke off Jeroboam, said, look, I don't want them traveling back to Jerusalem. And so he set up shrines in, in Dan and in Bethel, places of, of false worship, literally set up golden calves like they had in, in, in Exodus in order for them not to travel back to Jerusalem. And so what has happened is they have, for 200 years now, have been following the traditions of man. They have been following um, the traditions um, of, this, of this cultic um, worship. They've been following over idols of the surrounding gods. And God's like, I've given you the revelation and truth of who I am, and you have rejected it, you have not kept it, and you have walked astray. Remember, against Tyre, one of the nations last week, he says, You're, what you've done is you broke the treaty. You've broke a treaty, like you didn't keep your word. What's happening to Judah here is they've broken a far greater treaty than Tyre ever broke. They've broken a treaty and a covenant with God. 
right? That God has given them an expectation. He has given them himself. And now he's saying, you've done what you've wanted. You've followed your ways. You've rejected truth. He then quickly moves in to Israel and says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And so he starts it the same way. But what we're going to see is he breaks his pattern here and he gets a much longer judgment against Israel, which would be important because one, they're the recipients of this. But two, it's, he's wanting you to take note that this was the point. This was the point of why we're doing this is I've listed it. I've set a, a, a theme an expectation, and now here is what's going on for you. And so let's break this down. The, the first that he does um, is, verse 6 and, and the first part of 7, is it sins from individual to individual, right? They have sold the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. They sell the righteous for silver. What's going on here is the, they're using the court systems to their advantage. And folks who were innocent, right? It says they were righteous. They're selling them off. They're selling them into slavery. They're, they're paying bribes and they're gaining money. And they're selling people who either had a small debt or potentially no debt at all but didn't have the ability to defend themselves. And they're selling them off for money. Right? Not only are they selling people into slavery, their own brothers and sisters, Right? And it says, and the needy for a pair of sandals, for small debts, they're holding people to account. Right? They're, they're showing no mercy. They're showing no grace. They're trampling on people. Verse 7, they trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. And it's like, look, I'm looking at the poor and, and, and the, the, the low, and you're walking on them like you're walking on dirt. Like you have no thought of who they are and what's gone on with them. You are trampling them Overfoot. He says, you're more concerned about profits. You're more concerned about gain, um, comfort, and commercial. More concerned with wealth than you are with people. And so you're selling people into slavery. You are perverting justice. You're abusing your power. You're pushing people out of the way. You're walking on them. You're despising them. You're blocking them from their own ability to gain. He's like, look, you're doing this to your fellow brothers and sisters in your own nation, that upon their back you're gaining your wealth, and your fortune, and your peace, and your stability. He continues then with personal issues, not just things that are done to others, but things that were going on within their own hearts. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. And, and Amos is potentially referring to two different situations here. One would be this. That he's saying, look, you are going into um, the temple prostitutes of Baal, and you're, you're sleeping with them. He's like, you, you are going in like you're worshiping. You're calling it worship, and you are committing adultery and fornication. He's like, you're doing these horrific things and saying, but it's worship, because I did it at the temple. I did it at the shrine. And he says, and so you are defiling, profaning my holy name. What was... What was what the act of worship here was they were asking Baal to fertilize the land to keep it fertile and ready to produce a crop. And so they were basically acting that out through sexual activity. And he's like, and you're, and you're calling it worship. The second is he's potentially just saying, look, the, the morals of society have just fallen to the, there's no shame that a man and his father would even go to the same woman. 
He's like, these things that you've been called to do and to avoid, you're now doing them. And you're leading others into it. And you have no shame at all. That you're taking these defenseless women and you're doing whatever you want. And so first he starts off with, here's how you're treating one another. He's like, look, and now you're doing it in your own hearts and in your own lives, personally. And the third is this. He's like, you're sinning against my grace. Look at what he says. Verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And so in Exodus 22, one of the things you could do, if someone owed you a debt, you could take their, their cloak, right, as a, as a promise of, hey, they owe you something. But it says at the end of the day, you had to return it to them. It was a law to protect the poor, that they would have a way to stay warm, a, a place to lay their head. Here's what the law stated in Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of the people with you who are poor... You shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So this was the standard and the expectation that God says, you will not trample on the poor. You're not going to hold them to some account. You're not going to take advantage of them. But look at what the people are doing. It says they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. So they're keeping these. They're, they're trotting upon the poor. But they're taking them to the altar, to a place of worship. The altar is the place where we receive mercy. Where we are reminded that blood is necessary for our forgiveness and our rescue. So is what would happen at the tabernacle. And now they're taking and not showing mercy, not looking at the poor as a, as a human, but is looking to take advantage of them. And it's just like they're reclining at the altar, the place where we we're supposed to receive mercy, and flaunting their lack of mercy. They're completely ignoring God's will for the situation. And would have the audacity to go before the place where they are asking for mercy and say, look at how I'm not showing it. He continues. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. You'll notice he doesn't say in my house. He says, or for me, he says in the house of their God. They have exacted fines and now they are splurging. They are indulging on the wine on the back of behalf that has been purchased with fines on behalf of those that they have perverted justice for. And so they're going to a place of worship, and in worship they're flaunting a lack of mercy, and they are indulging themselves and and holding themselves in high regard on the backs of their fellow brothers and sisters. And so he says, look, you have sinned against one another. You have sinned against my holy name with your actions, and now you are sinning against the grace that I have given The altar was supposed to be a place of mercy and the temple or the tabernacle was a place of God's presence reminding them that he was with them. So what he's saying to Israel is this, is look, you have mistreated the poor. You are corrupt. You're abusing your power. You're abusing your privilege. You are mocking my name. You are mocking worship. You are choosing comfort and wealth over people. You're ignoring me. Look, these are not violent crimes against humanity. 
But he's saying, I'm holding you to the same account because this is not what I've called you to. And so burning the bodies of your enemies, selling whole populations into slavery, he's like, you're doing the same stuff. Because you're not treating people like humans and you're dishonoring me. Remember, the people of Israel were called to be a light to the nations. To reflect the character of God. He literally chose them so that he could put his glory on display. So that as he blessed them and as they honored him, that people would be drawn to them and would see God's character. And he would receive the glory and worship that he deserves through their unique relationship. That is the purpose of Israel being called in the first place. And they are now presuming upon him that it's like, hey, we can do what we want. We've kind of got this divine get out of jail free card. Right? God's not going to do anything to us. When he shows up, it's for our benefit. Everyone else will get squashed and we're good. And they have assumed and presumed upon his mercy and his grace. And so as he lays out, here's what you're guilty of. So you can imagine the crowd has gone from, yeah, get them, God, to, oh, no. Look at what God does in verse 10. Sorry, verse 9. So he he's lays out the charges. And then in verse 9, he says this, yet it was I... Who destroyed the Amorites before them. And so what he's going to begin to do here is he's going to lay out five things that he says that he has done on behalf of the people of God. And the first is this. He says, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. He is referencing back now to to gaining the land. And if you remember in Numbers 13, when the spies went into Canaan, Right? How did they describe the people? They were giants. Can't take them. He says, the giants that were in the land, these oaks, these cedars, I defeated them for you. I, pres- I, ha- I gave a place for you and I took care of your enemies. I did that on your behalf. He then goes, verse 10, and it was I. He's not saying we did this. He's saying I did this. We don't, we don't contribute to this. It was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, look, I redeemed you when you were slaves, when you were helpless, when you were powerless, when you had a harsh taskmaster. I redeemed you out. So he's like, I prepared the land for you. I brought you out. He says, I led you 40 years in the wilderness. So he says, like, I was with you. I guided you. You had my presence. And during that time, he's revealing his law and his character and his compassion and his provision. And he is taking care of them. And so he has redeemed them. He has cared for them. He has defeated their enemies for them. Look then. Why? So that you could possess the land of the Amorite. I gave you your inheritance. I gave you this land for you to exist and to be my people on. And then verse 11. And... I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. So he says, I gave you a constant line of communication. Because you're going to have prophets who are going to hear from me, who are going to deliver to you. And Nazarites, those who didn't cut their hair, who didn't drink wine, those that would show discipline and dedication and a reminder of the holiness expectation that was given. So God's saying, look, I redeemed you. I rescued you. I prepared the land. I've maintained relationship I've guided you. I have been for you. I've given you what I've promised. I've con- and now I've maintained it because I've given you prophets to c- continue communication so that you know that I'm with you. 
And listen to what the Lord says. Like, don't miss this here. Because he has basically, remember last week, he has roared no at them. And he says, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Like he's saying there, it's like, am I wrong? Have I not done this? And now their history is flooding back. Their history is coming back at them of God has done this. This is who he is. This is what he has done. And so he's saying, look, here's how you've sinned against me. And here's what I've done for you. How quick you are to forget. And it's why we remind ourselves of this often. Church, we're prone to forget. Israel is not alone in this, that we are prone to forget the grace and the sacrifice of God and and to presume upon it. Verse 12. But you have made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So he says, here's your judgment, right? Here's the charges against you. Just a reminder, here's what I've done on your behalf. And your response to that is, is you've rejected my word. You've told the prophets this. We don't want to hear from God anymore. Don't prophesy. God says, look at what I've done. And you've said, we don't want you. We don't want to hear from you. And you've made the Nazarites to drink. He's like, you have mocked everything that I've given you. And you have cut yourself off from me. Thus, it's going to be judgment. We need to note some things here before we move into the judgment piece. The people of Israel had been slaves. Like, that was their history. And now they are selling people into slavery... It's like God's going, are you kidding me? Like I rescued and redeemed you from the hand of Egypt. And here you are selling your own brothers and sisters into slavery. You once were slaves. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness to follow me. And you are not rightly reflecting my character. You're not showing mercy. You're not showing justice. You're not showing compassion or kindness. You are flaunting your privilege. You have cut off communication. You are not living the salvation that I have given you. You are contradicting it. And listen, they're breaking the covenant God has made with them in the land that he gave them as a promise to that covenant. Like everything around them should remind them of who they are and what God has done and how he has rescued and redeemed them. And they are flaunting and mocking it in the very place that he has rewarded and given them. And so he says, look, with all that said, judgment's coming. Verse 13. So behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. So this idea is of a cart loaded down with sheaves of wheat. And and he's saying, look, as the cart groans under the weight, folks, you're going to be groaning. Israel, you're going to be groaning. And as the, the, the wheels would split the earth with the weight, right? There's, he's saying, look, if you mean earthquake, right? We, we know that an earthquake came because Amos tells us in chapter 1, right? That he ministered two years before the earthquake. Like judgment is coming. And God is saying, it's, it's coming for you because of these things, because you've forgotten your history, because you have not honored me. Judgment is coming. Here's the other thing about their history. 
They know what God's capable of. Like, so far in history, he has turned his wrath towards their enemies. And one of the greatest superpowers in the world, Egypt, could not stand against God. Nations that would, would come at his people, he wiped them out. Like, that's who he is. And now Israel's realizing God's always been on our side against our enemies, and now his crosshairs are on us. We're in trouble. Because we know what he's capable of. And so he ends it reminding them the things that you depend upon cannot save you. Look at verse 14. You're swift, you're going to perish. The strong, not going to retain their strength, nor will the mighty save their life. Verse 15. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself. The one who rides the horse will not save his life. So he's saying, look, your bowmen, your military, your infantry, your, your cavalry, they're not going to win. They're not going to stand. Nothing. You can't run. I'm going to pursue you. You're not strong enough. You're going to be destroyed. Verse 15, or 16. And he who is courageous, stout of heart among the mighty will flee naked in that day. Nothing is going to save them. Nothing they've depended on. Because remember, Jeroboam has, has been a ruler for 41 years. And from the outside looking in, we would applaud him. Israel's silver age, right? Their second greatest era. Wealth, land, peace, stability. These things that we tend to would look at and say, God's blessing them. And he's saying, all of those things have blinded you to the fact that you have not been living for my name for my kingdom, for my glory. You have built it on the backs of the downtrodden. You have trampled over them. And so your wealth was gained inappropriately. Your stability, it's not good. Your peace wasn't from me. Jeroboam, 41 years of reign, and in in 2 Kings 14, he gets seven verses. And it's called a wicked and vile man. The things that they had hoped in and depended in and their military, their stability, their peace, their, their wealth are all to their detriment, to their shame. Because they have ignored and not trusted the word of God. Right? So now here they are receiving this word. And look, we know that God is a covenant keeping God. This is not him wiping Israel off the face of the earth. It's him purifying a remnant. Always going to leave a, a, a group that will be his prize, that will be a light to the nations. But here's what we have to do this morning, church, as we walk through chapter 2. We have to ask, what do we see as success? And what do we see as blessing? Because the people of God here thought they were being blessed with these really tangible things. They didn't have enemies coming after them. They had money, they had wealth, they had security, they had peace. They had a strong military. This morning, church, what are we depending on? Our military? Our economy? Our favorite political leader? Our favorite political party? Because God is saying that is not what secures you. And that is not what you're to depend on. You're to depend upon me. And in Psalm 2, one of my... One of these psalms that 
that feels like it just is pulled out of the news. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So he's saying, Look, the nations like rage against me. In verse 4, He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look, we can rage against the Lord. We can think that we are strong and mighty and that nothing can come against us. And God is saying, I'm not impressed. That when I turn my wrath upon you, you will not stand. No matter how mighty, no matter how strong, no matter how impressive. And so this morning, our question is this, in your soul, what is it that you're depending on? Are you depending on the character of God, or are you depending on something man-made that might actually be being applauded in society right now? That might be seen as a sign of blessing from God, and God is saying, but you're not honoring me. You're not following me. You're not depending upon me. Ultimately, their fourth sin... The fourth transgression that they're being crushed for is this. They had God. They were given God and they rejected Him. They had Him. And they said He wasn't enough. They didn't want Him. Church, we also, not only do we need to ask the question, what are we depending on? We have to check our traditions to the Word. Right? Because He says, look, you followed traditions. And we we see how this works, right? That, That our parents... Or our grandparents or our leaders, they, they start to take us away. And, and at first you question it a little bit and then eventually you follow it. And if you're asked, why do you do it? You're like, I don't know. That's just what's always been done for me. And then it begins to be, that's the gospel truth. And then we compare it to the word and the word says, that's not true. And we're like, but this is my tradition. And so when Redeemer started, it was a group of people sitting in a room saying, hey, let's not make any assumptions about what the church should look like. Like, let's actually let Scripture dictate that, not our personal preferences and tradition. And it's why we have to continue to fight for that. Because here's the thing, we're only almost eight years old, and traditions can emerge here. And they can emerge apart from Scripture. That we have to continually be coming back to Scripture saying, why are we doing the things that we do? Because Scripture is our guide, not tradition, not man. And as soon as the gospel begins to be assumed... The gospel is lost, right? And what has happened in West Texas is that there were churches were full for a lot of decades. And we just assumed that we raised Christians in West Texas. And then one day people looked up and realized we don't know what the gospel is anymore. And people don't love Jesus and they're just like culturally Christian. They just kind of have some Christian like edges on them, but they don't actually love Jesus. And they don't treasure him and they don't follow him. And then we're like, wait a second, but we know the gospel. But we assumed the gospel. We didn't pass it on. Like that each generation has to find anew the freshness and the beauty of the gospel. And we cannot assume that because I love Jesus, my children will love Jesus. And because I love Jesus, that my grandchildren will love Jesus. We have to point them to Jesus and ask him whose arm is not too short to save to rescue them. For them to see him as worthy of worship. So we have to check our own lives and our own traditions and our own whys and our own expectations on why do we do the things that we do? And is it guided by the word or is it guided by some familial tradition?
the, there's a reminder here as well to the, to the church that wants to run away from Scripture and change Scripture and say that God no longer is saying those things. God's Word doesn't change. And we don't say, well, I think the church just misunderstood it for about 2,000 years. Misinterpreted it. And here's what it really means. And we are so smart, we have figured it out. God's Word stands. And everything else fades away. And God is consistent to his word. And he says, you do not in your tradition profane my name. But you trust it and you are guided by it and you walk with it. A third thing that we can take away here from Amos chapters 1 and 2 is this. If you've come in thinking God's at your beck and call and you are faced with this God. Right, I hope that we sit up and say... I have presumed upon a holy and ferocious and fierce God. That we would say, hey God, here's what I need from you. Make it happen. Are you kidding me? To this God who would roar from Zion and say, no, no, no. You don't profane my name. Judgment is coming because you have been, right, not faithful to what I've called you to. And I think for some of us, we, we, we have a very small God. That we think kind of does what we want him to do. And we get frustrated when he doesn't. We need to see we have a much bigger God than that. Who is holy. Who fills the heavens. Who cares about his name and his glory. About people who would say that they're called by his name looking like they honor him. Living lives that honor him. And so any gospel that would tell you God is here Right To make your life more comfortable and easy is not showing us the God of Amos. Who calls us to obedience, to faithfulness, and to holiness. And then lastly is this. I hope part of what's going on in your heart and your mind as you begin to see just a little clearer what's going on in Amos 2 is this. Is who can stand? This is God's chosen people and they are about to be right met with judgment from God. The question that should be in our heart is this. is Who can stand against the Lion of Judah? When he turns his wrath towards us, who can stand? Like that is what the, the people are going. What do we do? Because from our history we know when God pours out wrath, people die and people lose and he gets his way. And he has now turned his attention to Judah and to Israel. Who can stand? Church, we often, I think, look at Jesus like he did us a little favor. Man, thanks for going to the cross. I was doing all right, but you, you know, you pushed me over the edge. Appreciate that. You died that death I didn't deserve. We say it like that. Who can stand against the wrath of God? We can't. And Jesus stood in our place and took the ferocious wrath of God upon himself and shielded us from it. Because otherwise we are destroyed. We are wiped out by the holiness and wrath and judgment of God who wants his name glorified. And Jesus steps in and takes it. It was no small favor It was a sacrifice beyond what we can fathom and imagine. Because we deserve it more than you think you do this morning. 
And Jesus does it on our behalf. Right? Like when, when we think of Jesus, we need to think of Amos. And how God feels about our sin and our tradition and our profaning his name and our disobedience and our lack of holiness. And realize that was poured out on Jesus so that it was not poured out on you. So that we can look at this and say, this is the character of God. And yet Jesus has received it. And so we have received mercy and grace and love and hope and forgiveness and salvation. Thus, how do we not lay down at the altar having taken someone else's mercy? Right? Like they are flaunting the mercy of God by laying on the altar. We have received the mercy of God through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we say, now, live thus. Be merciful. Be compassionate. Be gracious. Be loving. Be kind. In church, if we take our privilege and our power to hurt others, we are doing exactly what the people of God were doing in Amos. So this morning... The band is going to come up here in a moment. We would invite you to stay seated until they begin to sing. That we would reflect rightly um, this morning on the character of God. That we would ask him to reveal himself to us. And that maybe we just need to sit and say thank you to Jesus this morning. That we have hope that this is not going to be turned against us because Jesus has done it on our behalf. And so that, that sacrifice is for all. But not all receive it. It's for those who trust and treasure and pursue Jesus, who have heard him call us and have responded to it. And so do we honor our king who is holy and righteous and who has taken that wrath on our behalf? Let's pray.